Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about new help for an old problem, peanut allergies. And do you believe in past life regression? In other words, what happened in your past life may be the root cause for your troubles in this life. It's fascinating. Also, do you snore? That may not be the only symptom of sleep apnea. And on this Mother's Day, do you strive to be a perfectionist? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. I was really interested to see that there was a a new treatment for kids age one to three for peanut allergies, and it's a skin patch. And it made me think of a book that I had read uh, this spring, of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. It's by Greg. Interesting book. It, it, It is, it's fascinating actually. And they did talk a little bit about peanut allergies and, and really about kids, actual allergies. And the author actually talks about, um, going into, um, a school, uh, when his child was in, I I think it was preschool and, um, yeah, it was the first day of preschool. It was, it occurred in, in Virginia. Um, but before he was allowed to actually step over the threshold to his college degree, the parents had to go for a little orientation, which is very common. Um, and they were, you know, they were given all the rules of the, of the school and, and the most important rule time they had spent talking about it was no nuts. And, and that was because of the risk to children with peanut allergies. There was an absolute prohibition bringing anything that contained nuts into the building. Um, of course, as you know, I'm sure peanuts are not nuts. They are legumes, but some kids have allergies to tree nuts as well. So along with peanuts and peanut butter, all nuts and nut products were banned. Anything produced in a factory that had uh, processed, also anything like dried fruits and other snacks were prohibited as well. And the list just grew on and on and on. And so he decided to ask the question, does anybody here in this classroom have a child that has a nut allergy? But the teacher interrupted boldly, as you can imagine, (laughs) oh, no, 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 do not put any pressure on any of the other parents. Don't put anyone on the spot. Um, Don't make any parent feel uncomfortable, uh, regardless of whether or not there's a child in the classroom, these are the school rules. And, you know, you, the, the school is, is actually being very cautious and understandably so peanut nineties, but a study came out that, uh, found only four out of a thousand children under the age of eight had such an allergy, meaning that probably nobody in their son's class or entire preschool had, um, which was about a hundred kids had the allergy, but by 2008, according to the same survey, using the same measures, the rate to 18 out of a thousand. And that meant that there were likely one or two kids in their son's class who had a peanut allergy. And so there was, nobody really knew why children were suddenly becoming more allergic to peanuts. It certainly wasn't I experienced growing up. People didn't have peanut allergies. Um, but certainly it's commonplace today in schools that no one is allowed to bring peanut butter. So you, you want to protect them from peanuts and any peanut products, um, and anything, um, such as that. So the reason that the peanut allergies were, were surging was because parents and teachers had started not giving peanuts and peanut butter and peanut products to children back in the 
hypothesis that regular eating of peanut containing products when started during infancy will elicit a protective immune response instead of an allergic immune response. And there were 640 infants that were recruited four to 11 months old. They were at high risk of developing a peanut allergy because they had eczema or they had tested positive for another allergy. So basically the researchers told half the parents to follow the standard advice for high risk kids, which was to avoid all exposure to peanuts and peanut products. And the other half were given a supply of a snack made from peanut butter and, and puffed corn. And were told to give it to their child at least three times a week. And the, all of the families were followed very carefully. And when the children arrived, they tested for an allergic reaction to peanuts and the results were stunning. Among the children who had been protected from peanuts, 17% had developed a peanut allergy. And in the group that had been exposed to the peanut products, only 3% had developed an allergy. So for, for a long time, allergists have been recommending that young infants avoid consuming allergenic foods to prevent food allergies. But the advice maybe had, has been incorrect all along and may have contributed to the rise in peanut and other food allergies. So our immune systems are, are miraculous. They are basically orchestras against infection and they can't possibly anticipate all of the pathogens that a child will encounter. And, and so it's, it's kind of by design or by natural selection to learn bacteria. There's not enough outdoor play as well. Um, and so kids don't get dirty there. It doesn't help to build up their immune system. And so peanuts or peanut proteins, which typically are non-threats have become very vaccinations use the same logic and childhood vaccinations actually make us healthier, but it's not because they reduce the threat in the world. They actually expose kids to those threats in small dosages. And that gives the kids immune system, the opportunity to learn how to fend off similar illnesses in the future. So I, I just think this is a very interesting um, book. Number one, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Goes through a lot of other um, hypotheses and stories and things that you didn't quite understand as well. Um, but, you know, this is a problem for a lot of people and in part peanuts at an early age or, or peanut products at an early age. Um, certainly kids who have peanut allergies um, need to need to carry with them an EpiPen. Not only are the EpiPens very expensive, um, I think they're about $270, but you know, you have to be injected immediately. Also living, um, you know, quality of life is, is altered when you have a peanut allergy because you never know if, you know, somebody is going to bring something that was made in a factory where there were nuts. Um, and so it's, it's not easy. You can't go to birthday parties. You have to always be educating people about what a child can and cannot eat in your home or what they can and can. I know it makes me nervous if uh, I'm around somebody who has an egg allergy or a peanut allergy, um, because you just never know if something you have or something brought um, is going to be the trigger and have caused them to anaphylax, have an anaphylactic reaction. We're talking about peanut allergies and uh, there's a new patch for that. Uh, Yves in Calgary wrote in and texted in, I was in grade school in the 60s and 70s. I knew a couple of kids with peanut allergies in my class and other grades. Also two kids 
with wheat allergies. Yes, wheat allergies um, can also may also cause a life-threatening reaction known as anaphylaxis. In addition to other signs and symptoms of wheat allergy, anaphylaxis can cause. So with wheat allergy, you can get like bloating and skin rash and that kind of thing. But if you anaphylax from that, you can get swelling or tightness in the throat, chest pain, um, or chest tightness as well. And you require an EpiPen also for that. And to carry around, you have to carry around an EpiPen all the time. And so, you know, it makes life uh, very challenging, which is why this skin patch is providing hope for a lot of kids. And it's a patch that sits on the person's skin and it can help to reduce the risk of severe allergic reactions in toddlers with peanut allergies. And this is a, a newly published uh, study done um, at, at Children's Hospital Colorado. It was um, done with 300 children aged one to three. So it's not that robust of a study, but it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it found that toddlers who wore the patch for 22 hours a day for one year were able to tolerate the equivalent of one to four peanuts, meaning their sensitivity to peanuts had been reduced. Now you're probably thinking one to four peanuts, what is the big deal there? This does does not sound like a cure. This does not sound like uh, a treatment, this, but this is going to change lives because, you know, many people can be severely allergic to, you know, just a very small amount of like a, a quarter of a peanut or, or less, just the tiniest amount of a peanut. So one to four, it, it does not make a peanut allergy so life-threatening. And so a lot of people will be very happy that this patch named Biaskin is available uh, and it works by releasing small doses of peanut protein powder that are absorbed into the, to the skin and that exposes the child to peanuts. Um, and that is according to the biopharmaceutical company uh, that is behind Viaskin. And that's interestingly enough, it's, it's very similar to the hypothesis in the book that I told you about, The Coddling of the American Mind how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Um, you know, very interesting book. And, you know, in this day and age, we, you know, we're raising, the kids are being raised very differently. Um, their digital technology is a tremendous aspect of their lives. We're, soon we're going to be looking at AI and how that's going to impact uh, kids, artificial intelligence. Um, but today, you know, the kids, there's a, tremendous, and we've talked about this on the program in the past, there's such a high risk for addiction to digital technology. Kids are online. They've grown up online, younger children. And, you know, many are staying up really late on their iPhones or on their phones, on their computers, they're gaming. Um, and, you know, it's a great setup for addiction. Parents have difficulty saying no, um, feeling, you know, like, they cannot fight up against their, against their kids. And, you know, also there's peer pressure to not be that parent in the neighborhood that says no phone until age 13 or 15 or, or whatever, because kids six and seven, um, are, you know, walking around with phones. I mean, you know, two-year-olds are saying, I'm just going to go and watch such and such on your iPad. You know, I mean, two and three-year-olds are, are saying this. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's um, a different world in, in which we're living. 
Um, anyway, getting back to the peanuts, <laughs> exposing your children to peanuts. I don't recommend that you do that without speaking to your, um, to your doctor and, and definitely having a conversation about this. And, you know, my heart goes out to you. If you have a child who does have a peanut allergy or a wheat allergy, uh, because it's, it's definitely a very difficult way to, way to live, but I'm glad to see that Viaskin is now providing some hope for people. And, um, you know, this could make your life easier and, um, could make your child's life easier as well, because it's definitely hard, um, for them. So once they wear the, uh, patch for 22 hours a day, um, and you know, they, they do have to wear that. It has to be switched out every day. So there's a new patch every day. It's worn between the shoulder blades and, um, you know, it's, um, something to think of the latest medical guidelines recommend that if a child does not have any eczema or a food allergy, a parent may start exposing them to peanut containing foods as young as six months of age in order to reduce the risk of developing a peanut allergy. And that's according to the American college of allergy, asthma, and immunology. But again, speak to your doctor about that. Um, before you go ahead and do that, it's extremely important. So anyway, something to know about there's uh, it's very good to do your research and get a second opinion if you, if you need to, but this could be causing a lot of havoc in yours, in your child's or your grandchild's life. What is troubling you? Do you have headaches, insomnia, difficulty quitting smoking or losing weight? You've tried pills, patches, and diet plans. Have you ever thought of hypnosis? Maybe you should. Vance Romain is my guest and he can help you using hypnotherapy for things like weight loss and smoking cessation. His website blog is vanceromain.com and he joins me on the line. Good evening, Vance. Good evening. Nice to connect with you, especially on Mother's Day. A big, wonderful uh, Mother's Day to uh, happy Mother's Day to all the uh, wonderful mothers listening out there. Aw, thank you so much. Beautiful here in White Rock. Lovely. White Rock, White Rock, British Columbia. Beautiful place. I think we'll thank this today. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, very interesting subject uh, matter, I have to say. Um, so many people suffer with uh, quitting smoking, they have difficulty, they can't do it. I've heard more and more stories recently about people diagnosed with cancer and they're still smoking. I was listening to a podcast yeah. recently about somebody who was saying that their um, mother who was in her 80s and, and she, or their grandmother it was, and she was still smoking and they were hiding her cigarettes, but she was finding them and she was also buying more and hiding them. And, um, you know, and, and it really plagues people. And then, and losing weight, I know whenever I mention my all in nutrition plan on the radio, I get 50 requests from people to send me that plan. You know, people have, they struggle with these types of things, struggle with insomnia, headaches, and you can help people. You can help the listeners. So we're going to talk about hypnosis and then also past life regression, which I'm very interested in. I saw an, an interesting story on your um, website blog at vanceromain.com. But let's start with what exactly is hypnosis? Okay, this is very good to know. The biggest 
a problem with people coming to me, and I've been doing this now 55, 60 years, is they think they can't be hypnotized. Now, hypnosis is no different than getting wrapped up in a good TV show, not hearing someone calling you to dinner. You're so focused on the show. Another example, you're in a movie theater, and you're forgetting about the audience around you. You don't notice the people walking down the aisle. Maybe a knife is thrown in the movie, and you duck. You're involved emotionally. So this is what it's all about, getting involved emotionally. When I hypnotize people, I work on the different senses. I encourage them to imagine what they see, hear, smell, taste, and feel so they get involved in it. If I tell them that they're going to leave food on their plate, it's not just absorb the thought. It's seeing themselves leaving the food on the plate. They're programming their subconscious so that when they go into their daily life and they're in front of the table there and the plate's in front of them, they're saying things like, I'm leaving food on the plate. I never did that before. I'm feeling full with less food. I never liked exercise, but I want to do it now. I don't understand it. I just feel like it. I want to do it. So it's more effortless. Now, the other thing is that in hypnosis, you're super aware. You hear the hypnotist all the time. Otherwise, how can he help you? You'd you'd have to be, uh, if, 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 if you're deaf, I couldn't help you as a hypnotist. You have to hear me. So people always think they're going to be unconscious, not knowing what's going on. You're super aware, super conscious. Like when you go to sleep at night and the tap dripping, the car's outside, you're aware of the house creaking, you're super aware as your eyes are closed, the sense of sight is gone, the sense of touch is disappearing, and your ears are peaking. So this is a great time to listen to hypnotic recordings is have this programming going into your mind as you fall asleep. They turn over in your mind as you sleep. We all have these dreams at night, and they seem so real. It seems like you're with someone who's maybe passed on. You're right there with them. It seems so real, and that's what it's all about. The imagination, the subconscious does not distinguish between imaginary and real. And when we get them into that powerful state with powerful statements such as, your bones have left you, your body is melting down, and I work on this for maybe five minutes, all of a sudden pretty much anyone gets hypnotized by these types of methods that I do. Wow, I saw that, that, that there was a lot of recordings. I will say that you are a master certified hypnotist. And you, you said you've been doing this for 55 or 60 years. That's amazing. Um, so how, how is it that hypnotherapy or hypnosis can help people to quit smoking? I mean, some people have tried so many different methods and they just find it near impossible. And they may go from smoking cigarettes to vaping. Uh, for a time and then back to smoking even. And it's so challenging for people. So how does that actually work? And by the way, can you hypnotize me into leaving something on my plate, please, over the radio, (laughs) over the airwaves? (laughs) Maureen will make you slim, trim, and slender. And the next time we see you, we'll see a lot less of you. So this is how it works. Back in 1992, the top physician, the United States Surgeon General did a study of stop smoking programs, over 700 programs. And the conclusion was there's no one best program to help everyone stop smoking. The best program is one that's customized, individualized, personalized, a multiple method approach. And this is what I've done. I've toured this country. My goal as a young man was to help as many people stop smoking as possible. And we had audiences up to 500, 700, 1,500 across this country. I helped more people stop smoking than anybody else ever. And so I'm proud of that. And the, the reason it worked so well 
when people took responsibility and followed the steps that I gave them, which were very simple, so simple a child could do them, is we used all the best non-hypnosis methods, you know, drinking more water, deep breathing, exercise, simple things, stress control. And the second thing is the hypnosis. And we would hypnotize them to change their self-image so they feel, think, believe they're a non-smoker, walk like a non-smoker, talk like a non-smoker. No thanks, I don't want it, I quit. Uh, the, the worst thing that bothers me over the years is when somebody will call me and they'll say, I'd like to stop smoking. And I say, really? Well, uh, why don't you come to my seminar? Well, I can't make it that night, or I'll wait till you come to my town. I say, no, order the recordings. They're word for word with the seminar. And they just think that they have to see me live. And it's very sad because they're, they're spending their hard-earned money. They've already paid the tax on it. If it's $10 a pack, but we know it's a lot more than that today, that's $3,650 you know, $3, a year, tax-free money. And that's if it's only one pack a day at $10 a pack, but we know it's more than that. Some people, I had a fellow in uh, Bridgewater, Nova Scotia years ago. Years ago, he told me he was spending $40 a pack and worse what it's doing to the health. So mm -hmm. I love to help people. We know that over 9 out of 10 people who get lung cancer uh, were smokers. And I, my father had leukoplakia, precancer of the lip, in the 60s. And they cut mm -hmm. part of his lip off. It grew back. But, uh, you know, from that point on, I really wanted to help people stop smoking to save lives. That's why I got into hypnosis. Uh, it was strictly to help people. I went into the University of Manitoba in 1967, and I took the psychology, the Bachelor of Honors program, and I enjoyed it, but it, it wasn't enough for me. I wanted to go into this alternative area of, of hypnosis. You know, back in the 60s, when I took uh, psychology, they wanted to throw me out of the graduate program because they said I was practicing hypnosis. In the 1950s, doctors could lose their license practicing hypnosis because they thought it was dangerous or nonsense and so on. So now today, with COVID, more people have gone into hypnosis than any other time in history. It's everywhere. Unfortunately, wow. we have some very young people doing hypnosis, but uh, certainly you should have some adequate training to be doing hypnosis. Uh, of course. And so it's not like the movies where somebody is hypnotized on a stage and then they, they pass out and then they start following commands. So that, that's not hypnosis, I gather. Well, for years, hypnotists called these suggestions. I call them instructions, suggestions you can forget. You say, I don't have to follow the suggestion, but it's an instruction under hypnosis. And people uh, in the movies, that's, that's a lot of nonsense, a lot of bunk in there. Uh, you will get real hypnosis when you see a therapeutic hypnotist. The stage two is a lot of entertainment hypnosis. You know, talking about past lives, when I did the stage shows in the 60s, the 70s, up to about 1980, one of the last shows I did was the Pacific National Exhibition in Vancouver. We had up to 5,000 people a night in an audience and 300 on the stage. We had to turn them away. So many people were excited about being hypnotized. I would do a thing called Return to the Past. And I would hypnotize groups of people each night. And I'd tell them that they're going into the past through the tunnel of time and everything's spinning, going round and round, the pages of the calendar turning back, and they're becoming smaller and smaller and going back before birth. And guess what? In one week, we had three Joan of Arcs. I think we had one Cleopatra. We had several witches, uh, one Napoleon. So it's usually people, a pyramid builder, 
uh, usually famous people. Very rarely is it the cleaning woman at the at the local palace, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, hypnosis and past life regression is practiced in that way for entertainment, and people like to explore the subconscious. But the other area is the therapeutic use. Now, psychologists, psychiatrists in the community uh, are not really excited about past life regression, but there are a few that practice it. And, it's, and, it's and I want to get to that. It, I want to get to that in a minute, but I just want to focus a little bit more on how exactly that people okay. can download. Here, but, but what is the mechanism of action, if you will? How exactly through, through what aspect of the brain or the mind does it work? Here's a simple explanation everybody can use. Uh, basically, when we're running around in our everyday life and we're going to the dry cleaner, we're taking the kids to school, we're trying to earn a paycheck, we're busy. We're doing a thousand different things. We're worried about inflation, this and that. It's hard to focus on eating the right foods. It's hard to focus on exercise, maybe. I'm too busy. I've got no time. Uh, it's hard to focus on the healthy things that they should be doing. But when I set them down or they sit down with my recordings, in that case, in their own home, then they can focus in and they can meditate. And this meditation allows them to focus on hypnotic suggestions that I've worked on since the 1960s. These are specific suggestions. I don't make something up on the fly. These are suggestions that I've worked and through research with psychological journals and research and so on. What's going to work? I take the best of the best and I put and can it you in share their mind. One of those suggest- can you share what one or two of those suggestions would be? One of those hypnotic suggestions would be? You're going to be leaving your food on the plate feeling full and satisfied with small portions. You're going to okay. love exercise. You're going to love body movement. Uh, you're going to chew your food more slowly, more thoroughly, more completely. You're going to taste the food more. You'll enjoy it more. You'll need less of it. This type of thing. But there are over 110 suggestions that I'll give for weight loss, over 110 instructions as well. I call them suggestions or instructions for the people sometimes because they think of them as suggestions, but we call them instructions. And they follow these suggestions because they're being programmed. Now, these these types of things are no different than programming politically, programming in, in any field. I mean, if you, you hang around cooks, you'll think like a cook. If you hang around lawyers, you'll think like a lawyer. You hang around doctors, you'll think and dress like a doctor. So it's the same thing. I infiltrate the subconscious. I call it brain rinsing out the negative, putting in the positive. And we change the self-image to a non-smoker, a clean, fresh air breather, we change the image to, I'm already thin, trim, slim. I think like a thin person. I wouldn't eat that garbage junk food. I forget it. No want processed foods. No want sugars, salts. I don't want greasy, oily, fatty foods, this type of thing. It's history. It's not me anymore. It's, it's, it's this new me, this new lifestyle is a part of me as much as my two arms are, my two legs are. So it becomes a lifestyle. It becomes a new self-image. And you have to get them to love themselves, too. Because nobody's going to look after their health and their body if they don't appreciate the love of themselves. Sometimes there's forgiveness involved with themselves or others. So there's a lot of little things that are stuck in there. Now, my first hypnosis session when I do a seminar or on the recordings is to boost their motivation, their engine, the benefits of being a non-smoker, the benefits of losing the weight. I build up their confidence. I build up their self-esteem. Then we get to the main hypnosis session, and all these instructions are put into the subconscious mind. 
and they worked very well. We've had people lose 100 pounds, 180 pounds. People say, you saved my life. I wouldn't be here today, the doctor says, I had not gone to your program. Vance Romain is my guest. He is a master certified hypnotist. Have you ever had hypnotherapy or have you been hypnotized? Have you had success with that? What are your thoughts on this subject? The number to call or text 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Call or text me with your thoughts, comments, or concerns. Vance, thanks so much for staying on the line. On your website, your website blog, vanceromaine.com, I, I read a story about somebody who ha- was suffering with headaches. Um, and so there was past life regression was used in this particular instance. Can you tell me a little bit about that, please? Yes, uh, that was uh, Dr. William Jennings Bryan, MD. Uh, he passed away in the 70s, but he was a amazing hypnotherapist, uh, he, he began a hypnosis journal. He took hypnotists all over the world to visit different hypnosis clinics. He gave courses all over the place. But this particular case, he he had this uh, one patient that came in, and he had splitting headaches constantly, and they couldn't figure out why. There's not, nothing medically wrong with them. And again, if you're going for weight loss or something, you have to check with your doctor first, make sure there's nothing complicating there before the hypnotist. So anyway... He's clear medically for the headaches, and so he decided to use past life regression. The patient, I believe, was interested in past life regression, and this means better results as well if they're already interested in it. So anyway, uh, he hypnotizes them, and he goes into the past, and he sees himself on a castle. I guess he's a soldier or fighter of some sort, and a spear goes through his head, and he falls off the castle, and he falls into the moat below and so he's got these headaches and dr brian says to him listen this is not your body anymore that body's gone your soul your spirit your essence is now in a new body you're okay and all of a sudden the headaches disappeared now people who do this therapy some of them believe in reincarnation and past lives coming back and so on some do not but they don't care if it works it works and for certain patients Uh, If nothing else seems to work, it doesn't hurt to use that technique. I see it as kind of like a Rorschach test or a house tree person test. You get a person to draw a house tree or a person, and you look at it, you examine it with other things like body language and so on, uh, other tests, and you put them all together and see what you come up with. Now, here's another good case. Uh, This one man felt lost and unfulfilled in his career, so he underwent past life regression and discovered that in the past he was a healer. This realization led him to pursue a career in alternative medicine, and he found it much more fulfilling than ever before. You know, you could go back in the past and, and see yourself as an artist, and maybe that's what you really want to do in the subconscious. And so whether it's real or imaginary, it doesn't matter. It sometimes give you, gives you clues to make that life a little better or a lot better. And this is through hypnosis as well, this past life regression? Yes, so these past life regressions are all done through hypnosis generally. A word mm-hmm. of caution, there are some uh, cults and some unscrupulous people that will use past life regression uh, to get you into their cult and tell you that uh, they have the best technique in the world. And before you know it, you may be giving them all your money 
and get their name tattooed on your arm or something like that. So one has to be careful with these things. Make sure that if you mm-hmm. go for past life regression, that maybe they're referred by someone, a spiritual leader, or perhaps a psychologist, for example. There are psychologists that work in this area, psychiatrists, but they're, they're few and far between. Mm-hmm. And you said that the pandemic gave rise to more uh, people practicing hypnosis. Why was that? Well, I, I think that people were looking for a home occupation that they could do online, maybe. Uh, they were mm-hmm. looking for something that uh, would be fulfilling. They're helping people. This is why I do it. I, I don't need to work anymore. I'm basically retired. But, I, I, you know, I just miss the seminars. I go out and I do the f- a few live seminars or online seminars because the people just come back to me and they say, this was like magic. I can't believe it. And it just feels good to help people, doesn't it? You, you help a lot of people, and I really admire you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, I, ho- I hope so. Uh, I'm just trying. Vance, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It's fascinating information, and I really appreciate your enthusiasm around hypnotism, and, and uh, I'm grateful for all of the people that you've helped as well. So thanks so thank much. Thank you for so much me. for inviting me. It's been a wonderful meeting you here online. Right now, we're talking about sleep, specifically sleep apnea. Poor sleep is not a consequence of aging, although a lot of people think it is, and a lot of people expect to have poor sleep because they're getting old and they go untreated. According to a StatsCan 2008 Canadian survey of experiences with primary health care among people age 65 and older, 73% live with a chronic disease. 32% of those have one chronic disease, 24% have two, and 17% have three or more. Unfortunately, this particular survey did not include questions about sleep or sleep apnea. Had sleep apnea been included, the number of people with chronic diseases would have been that much higher. But the number of people with multiple chronic disease would still have been underestimated. Sleep apnea is the most underdiagnosed chronic disease in Canada, especially in seniors. And the screening questionnaires that work well in younger adults don't always work well in seniors because of the different lifestyles that these two demographics live. It's estimated that about 50% of seniors have sleep apnea and 80% of these cases are undiagnosed. While men generally have almost twice the rate of sleep apnea as women, postmenopausal women have the same rates as men, which is perhaps why it is more often missed in older women. Here to talk about all of this is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell, and I'm so happy to talk to her about this because she is a physician who focuses in on wellness and performance. She is a speaker, a trainer, and a writer, and she also helps professionals reduce burnout and overwhelm so they can increase productivity in the workplace. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. Nice to have you on the show tonight. Happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you, and same to you. Thank you very much. Um, So, you know, you do a lot of work around performance and and especially people at higher levels of performance in the workplace. How important, let's just get back to the basics, how important is a good night's sleep? It's critical. Um, It is our bodies need it. We need that seven to nine hours. And some people think you can make up on the weekends for it. Nope, our body doesn't work that way. We need good sleep every night. 
So it's it's very important. And you know, and it also kind of depends on your life as well. Like you can get a little bit more tired. Like I, I feel like this week I'm just particularly a little bit more tired. <laughs> I overdid it myself. Um, and you're right. I trying to make it up on the weekend just didn't work for me this weekend, I have to say. <laughs> um, so that doesn't work. How important is sleep hygiene? Things like going to bed and waking up at the same time every day. How important are those kinds of it's things? It's very important. It's the foundation to good sleep. So like you said, um, waking up at the same time, limiting your electronic use before bedtime, avoiding caffeine in the afternoon, you know, using the bedroom only for things that begin with sleep. And S, <laughs> um, that's kind of what I tell my <laughs> Sleep patients. sounds good right now. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, yep. um, I, I'm going to admit I'm exhausted. Tonight. Oh, me too. Yes, I'm yeah. tired. Yes, I'm tired. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to something that begins with S, sleep. Yep. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that that's good advice. And, and, you know, do doctors typically ask patients about their sleep? I mean, I know they don't ask about sex. <laughs> they Do they ask about sleep? No, unfortunately, uh, healthcare communities, we need to do better on this topic. You know, um, this isn't something that many people will raise because they don't realize it's so, so important. But as care providers, definitely it should be a question. And especially if you see um, other chronic illnesses, like especially hypertension, I often ask them or look at their partner if they're in and be like, hey, do you wake up with bruises in the morning? Just kidding. Um, do you snore at night? Like just trying to look for it because I know that having sleep apnea is detrimental to the individual and their families on different levels. Absolutely. And you mentioned that snoring thing. You know, I hear this from so many couples that are sleeping together. There's a lot of couples yep. that are no longer sleeping together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the reasons that they're not sleeping together is because of the snoring. But you yeah. know, when a partner mentions that the other partner is snoring, it there's an automatic denial. I don't snore. I don't snore. You know, that's what you hear. And then yeah. partners go to recording. I can't tell you how many recordings I've listened to <laughs> in my Definitely. clinical practice yeah. of partners snoring. And then they're like, that's not me. That wasn't me. You know, there's so much denial around it when how, and how dangerous is sleep apnea? And we're going to get into obstructive sleep apnea shortly, but, but snoring is one of the signs. And why is it that people snore number one, I guess. And how dangerous is it? Well, um, people snore for many reasons and definitely as the airways loosen up, for due to hormone changes, more so with women after menopause, and men who, for some reason, have more lax airways, um, they snore. Other people snore, and it's not necessarily sleep apnea. It could be the excessively tired, or it's positional, right? But the mm-hmm. sleep apnea individual, it's pretty consistent regardless of how they sleep, and it's a consist- It's it's a regular nightly occurrence. And, and some people can actually stop breathing. Let's, let's get into that. If you have any questions about sleep or sleep hygiene or obstructive sleep apnea or 
issues you've had or treatments, the number to call or text is 1-877-399-9898. If you have a question for the doctor, 1-877-399-9898. Feel free to call or text. Leo is behind the boards and the mic is wide open. Um, So obstructive sleep apnea, um, what exactly is that? Well, obstructive sleep apnea is, as the name like says, it's you have obstruction of the airways and the apnea referring to individuals stopping breathing. It, as we said earlier, is one of the most commonly diagnosed and often undertreated chronic illness that individuals face. Um, it's basically patients have repetitive obstruction of their airways. Like there's literally a collapse or partial collapse of the upper airways during sleep. And as a result, we have changes in oxygen levels. So people are basically suffocating in their sleep. So that's OSA in a nutshell. And so can this have an impact? You mentioned oxygen desaturation. Can this have an impact on their hearts um, and oxygenation of their tissues? 100%. 100%. You, you know, your heart, your lungs, so they're in circuit, they work together and negatively impacted. Um, your brain health is impacted. Pretty much every system in your body is impacted. As we said at the beginning, sleep is critical. And spoiler alert, we all need to breathe well. And, and it's not just when we're awake, it's also when we're asleep, when we're supposed to be going through those healing, um, deep sleep stages and just restorative. So um, OSA is very significant. It's very important. And unfortunately, it's becoming more and more common. Mm-hmm. And obstructive sleep apnea or OSA, as you say, it's the most common form of sleep disordered breathing. And, and as you say, it, the prevalence is increasing steadily. And are there any particular reasons for that? Yes, we have a you know, a population that is growing girth-wise. We're getting obesity rates are on the rise. And then also because we've kind of widened the diagnostic window for patients with OSA. So we're, more people are being captured in the new guidelines. So that's part of it. But the biggest reason, without a doubt, what I've seen in my clinical practice, and I'm sure you've seen the same, Maureen, is the obesity Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see a lot of um, patients with management issues um, and, you know, and sometimes there's an apathy around that and they, and, I'm, and it's not to say that anybody who is overweight is unhealthy. Um, and, and I don't mean that in any way, but sometimes there is just an overall apathy around nutrition and sleep and activity or exercise. And, and people almost just start to give up, it seems. And they yeah. don't realize, and they don't feel well, and then they get depression, and when one thing leads to another, um, it's been suggested that discrepancies between males and females in the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea uh, could be a result of women frequently being misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because they're reporting different symptoms, and so sleepiness is a key component of obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, mm, yeah. but. But there's other symptoms as well. What are some of the other symptoms that um, people may experience? And, and, and even women experience different, um, a, a different host of symptoms than, than men do. What are some of the ones that women complain of? 
obviously insomnia, um, mood disorders, depression, palpitations, um, nightmares, and hallucinations, irritability, um, just feeling like they're not getting their work done, just feeling of overwhelm. Women, we, shout out to women for being amazing and strong and incredible, but sometimes we overcompensate and don't really give ourselves the grace to be human and know that absolutely is not a sign of weakness. So exactly. we have a caller on the, the line, problem. Dr. Mitchell. We have yes. a caller on the line. Derek in Calgary has a question for you. Good evening, Derek. Hi, how are you? Fine. Thanks. How are you? I'm okay. I have a quick question. If you don't mind trying to help me understand the variations in the AHI numbers. So I have a 52-year-old man who lives with Down syndrome. He has very severe sleep apnea. He uses a CPAP machine, and we check his numbers every morning. We're getting 100% no leakage uh, between seven, eight and a half hours, but his AHIs can go up into the 60s, and then like this morning, it was down to 12. Any ideas Mm -hmm. why we would have such variation really good question well you know i'm not a sleep expert like i'm not that's not my specialty however we do know with down syndrome sometimes you have facial um, structural differences that may open up the opportunity for more laxity there also could be a problem with the fit of that mask ideally it should be checked regularly especially when you're seeing such wide ranges um, you know, check to make sure the tubing doesn't have like a bunch of condensation. Like yeah. I would definitely um, talk to the person, individuals that fitted this individual because yes, there can be structural abnormalities, but still these are supposed to be well fitted and that range is quite yeah. significant. It shows no leakage though, 100% no leakage. Well, I... I do think sometimes instruments do fail, like I've okay. and I've seen it. So okay. I would, when in doubt, I would definitely take it in. And it just so happens to be one of those Philips Dream machines that have been on recall for two years now. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. And maybe that'll help. <laughs> Thank you for making my answering easier. <laughs> yes, exactly. I appreciate. It. I love your uh, show, Maureen. Dr. Tommy Mitchell is my guest. We're talking about uh, obstructive sleep apnea. I did, Dr. Mitchell, thanks for staying on the line. I did want to mention as well, women may complain of restless leg syndrome. I hear a lot of women complaining of that as well, in, in addition to some other uh, symptoms that men don't particularly complain of. But what, what are some of the, of the treatments? I'll just want to share with you quickly a story about uh, a friend slash colleague of mine. I'd hired him to do a little work. We were going to Montreal just overnight. And he comes on with this big bag, comes to the airport with this big bag. I said, what is that? <laughs> he said, it's my CPAP machine. I said, I, well, I said, what is that? We don't check bags. You know, we're like going overnight. We'll be back. He said, it's my CPAP machine. I said, that is checking bags is cause for dismissal. Anyway, <laughs> CPAP is not the sexiest thing. And in fact, he, when he was dating his wife, he said um, she wanted to go on a sailboat and... <laughs> He's not listening. Anyway, um, they were going to spend a couple of nights on her sailboat and 
And so he was saying, you know, is there power and is there electricity? <laughs> Turns out because he had this CPAP machine. Uh, so I'm not, and she's now his wife, um, I'm not suggesting that CPAP isn't sexy because it can be very beneficial for people. But what are some of the other treatments for sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, Dr. Mitchell? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, we love an opportunity to talk about smoking cessation. So quitting smoking. So really it's lifestyle. So um, drinking alcohol moderately or better yet, not at all. Exercising regularly, though preferably don't do that right before bed because that can stimulate you instead of relaxing you. Lose weight if you're carrying, you know, those extra pounds. And you position it in the way you sleep. So don't sleep on your back. So maybe on the side. And then sometimes those little nose strips, algae medications can help temporarily oh, yeah. anyway. So yeah. Yeah. Those, and there's also those mandibular advancement devices. There are treatment options for people that have mild to moderate obstructive yeah. sleep apnea. And and women actually have more success with those than than men do. So um, something to understand. But But I think the bottom line at the end of the day is... If you're snoring, if someone tells you you're snoring, believe them, go get the yes. treatment. It's good for your health. It's good for your relationship. It's yes. good for your productivity and, and quality of life. Um, you know, a lot of patients who have mild sleep apnea are often instructed to lose weight, but that may be more beneficial for, for men than, than women. Um, but if, you know, I don't know if you were listening earlier, but we were talking about hypnotherapy for weight loss. It's very hard mm -hmm. for people to lose weight. You know, that's requires discipline and, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's easy to gain, but it's not oh, yeah. so easy, easy to lose. Anyway, uh, we've got about a minute left. Anything in particular, um, you feel is important here? If this topic rings a bell, talk to your care provider next time you see them and approach the conversation because it can really improve your life expectancy and quality of life. So great advice. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell, for joining me, especially on this night, Mother's Day. Get a good night's sleep. <laughs> oh, I will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.